I'd like to welcome you to the 11 o'clock service of the Houghton Wesleyan Church and welcome those who are listening uh, online as well. If you are able, I'd invite you to stand at this point and join me in the responsive call to worship that is printed in your bulletin. God makes the sun to rise and set. He causes the summer and winter to come and go. God helps plants grow and flowers bloom. He gives us food to eat, places to live, people to love us. God is always with us, always guiding us, keeping his promises to us. Let us praise and give thanks to our faithful God. Amen. Heavenly Father, in a world that is full of so much uncertainty, uh, unpredictability, absurdity, and tumult, we thank you that you are a God that is faithful, that you always love us, you will always be there for us, and we need that today in your precious name. Amen.
Good morning. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, this morning, our ministry spotlight is focusing on our food pantry. You can see we're doing our uh, Thanksgiving food drive here this morning. And our food pantry is a very active ministry in our church. And in fact, uh, over the last six months or so, we have served uh, 70 or so households in our area, local community. And, uh, and I say households because often those are homes with extended family in, in them. You know, grandmas and grandpas and brothers and sisters and adult children. And so there, there can be uh, many people in the household. And so we're, we're happy and glad that we can be able to, uh, to serve folks in need who, who need food. And so there are several ways you could be involved if you'd like to help. One is by bringing food. And in fact, we have these handy shopping bags that uh, belong to the church here, here at the church. And you can take them with you, take them to the grocery store when you go, fill up a bag and bring it back and drop it here at the church. And uh, that will make it into our food pantry and be part of the, uh, the uh, food, obviously. Uh, also, you can volunteer. If you'd like to be a part of the food pantry in a serving in some way, there are, there are different ways you can do that. We have people who shop for specific items that run low or fresh items that we give out. Um, and so you could be one of those folks. You could be a volunteer in organizing the food and making sure that the food pantry is uh, uh, in good shape down there. And also, of course, you can feel free to give monetarily. And money used will, again, be used to purchase food that we need to uh, be a part of this ministry. If you'd like more information, you can look on the website or call the church office, and we'll put you in touch with the folks who, uh, who run it. And so thank you very much.
The Old Testament reading this morning will be from Zechariah, uh, selected verses. In November of the second year of King Darius' reign, the Lord gave this message to the prophet Zechariah. I, the Lord, was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. Return to me, and I will return to you. Don't be like your ancestors who would not listen or pay attention when the earlier prophets said to them, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Turn from your evil ways and stop all your evil practices. Everything I said through my servants, the prophets happened to your ancestors, just as I said. As a result, they repented and said, we have received what we deserve from the Lord of heaven's armies. He has done what he said he would do. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. If you follow my ways and carefully serve me, then you'll be given authority over my temple and its courtyards. I will let you walk among these others standing here. Soon I am going to bring my servant, the branch, and I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. And on that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and fig tree. Then another message came to me from the Lord of Heaven's armies. My love for Mount Zion is passionate and strong. I am consumed with passion for Jerusalem. I am returning to Mount Zion, and I will live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, the holy mountain. For this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. I was determined to punish you when your ancestors angered me, and I did not change my mind. But now I am determined to bless Jerusalem and the people of Judah. So don't be afraid, but this is what you must do. Tell the truth to each other. Render verdicts in your courts that are just and that leads to peace. Don't scheme against each other. Stop your love of telling lies that you swear are the truth. I hate all these things, says the Lord. I will strengthen Judah and save Israel. I will restore them because of my compassion. It will be as though I had never rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, who will hear their cries. The people of Israel will become like mighty warriors, and their hearts will be made happy as if by wine. Their children, too, will see it and be glad. Their hearts will rejoice in the Lord. Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming. On that day, the sources of light will no longer shine, yet there will be continuous day. Only the Lord knows how this could happen. There will be no normal day and night, for at evening time it will still be light. On that day, life-giving waters will flow out from Jerusalem, half toward the Dead Sea and half toward the Mediterranean, flowing continuously in both summer and winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. On that day, even the harness bells of the horses will be inscribed with these words, Holy to the Lord! And the cooking pots in the temple of the Lord will be as sacred as the basins used beside the altar. In fact, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord of heaven's armies. All who come to worship will be free to use any of these pots to boil their sacrifices. And on that day, there will no longer be traitors in the temple of the Lord of heaven's armies. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, I invite you to stand as the ushers come to take our tithes and offerings.
Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you enlist our help in trying to make the world a better place by offering some of what we have that you have given to us. I pray that you will multiply it and use it to do great things for your kingdom. In your name, amen. During the offering, children may be excused for Children's Church. On the Sunday before Thanksgiving, it is good to acknowledge not only our need to give thanks, but quite frankly, our tendency to forget to give thanks. So let me invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let us pray together. O God, giver of all that makes life good. We gather to give you thanks, even as we confess that we have often failed to live our thankfulness. 
We have a tendency to take for granted what we have. We have a tendency to grumble about what we lack. We have squandered your bounty with little thought of those who will come after us. We are more troubled by the few who have more than by the many who have less. Forgive us, O God. In this hour of worship, accept our thanksgiving. Teach us to make gratitude and sharing our way of life. And open our ears that we may hear your words of assurance and pardon, that though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we do want to thank you for all of our blessings. We have more than we could ever imagine. And we thank you for your gifts. We do want to be grateful people. And as we think about our lives, as we think about our church, as we think about our places where we work, our homes, this community and the wider communities, I want to give you thanks for all that you are doing. Father, as we gather today, there are needs and burdens that we bring with us, that we're concerned about in our own lives and the lives of others. We think of people who are grieving, particularly the family of Marjorie Kellogg. We pray that you would comfort each one in their grief. We pray for all who are struggling with health concerns, for Tim Nichols and his surgery tomorrow, for Bob Brown, Jane Swanson, Leonard Watson, and Louise Princell. Or Habecker, Hudson Hess, Nancy Cole, Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Ellis Brotsman and Chuck Barrett, Cheryl O'Brien, Ben King, Doris Asepian, Isla Shea, for Sheldon Emerson, Bill Getty, for Warren and Ella Woolsey and Mike Raybuck, for Beverett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Dick Gould and Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our minds today. May your healing grace be evident in all that they do, in all that they are. Father, we thank you for the ministries of this church and specifically today the food pantry. We thank you for the people we're able to help. We would love to keep helping more and more people to help folks see that um, you love them and you care for every need of their lives. Give us the ability to do that and to communicate that as we share. And Father, we pray for churches around us, and we think of the Fellowship Wesleyan Church in West Seneca, Pastor Neil Copen. As this church, as their church comes in worship today and gathers, may they know the power of your spirit with them, and may they bear witness to you, to their community and beyond. And Father, we, we think of this world of brokenness and pain in which we live. We pray for people who are recovering from recent disasters and tragedies. We think of refugees, think of people who live in war zones, people who, who uh, just yearn for life to be normal, peaceful. We ask that you would bring hope and peace and joy into these places. Father, we, we thank you for the work that Ben and Christine Hegerman are doing in Benin, West Africa. As their time is winding down this fall, may these remaining weeks be fruitful and may it bear fruit in the weeks and months and years ahead.
We always remember our brothers and sisters. We think today of the Christians in Chetnya. So few Christians separated, scattered. We pray, Father, for Christians like Alina and others who are so isolated. Give them courage and strength to live their faith and even to share their faith. And that there would be an openness to you as they live their lives in front of others. Father, we thank you for these three weeks of prayer that we are concluding today. Thank you for all of the miracles you've performed, all the prayers that you've answered, all the things that you've said to us, all the ways in which you have been at work in us through these three weeks of prayer. But Father, let this not be the end, but a catalyst to even more prayer. That we would rely on you and seek you with all of our hearts. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for all of your blessings. We thank you for your mercy to us in Christ Jesus, in whose name we offer this prayer and all of our prayers. Remembering the prayer he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever.
Generally, it's not wise or nice to other people to give away the end of a great story. But maybe in these uncertain times, it might be a good idea to have a good spoiler alert uh, and find out how the story ends and understand that God's faithfulness really does see us to the end. The Old Testament, the New Testament reading, and that's very important. The New Testament reading is from Revelation chapter 21. The New Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun Or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. For there will be no night there. This is the word of the Lord. There are a couple of uh, things that I want to bring to your attention that are in your bulletins. Um, tonight at 5 o'clock, we will be gathering back here for the closing gathering for the prayer vigil. And hope that you can be a part of this. We'll sing, we'll share some of our experiences and stories, and pray together. And so we hope that uh, you will make it a point to be here tonight at 5 o'clock uh, for this gathering. Also, you'll notice that we collected 183 shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child, and we give thanks for that and pray that those will bear fruit in the lives of children and their families. There are also a couple of inserts in your bulletin. One is about uh, stewardship and the financials, and we're putting that in once a month to update you. And also, uh, if you're a college student, we would really love for you to fill out this survey form. We want to connect with college students better And so to find out a little bit more about you as uh, somebody who attends this church while you're here, just fill out that form. There's a box in the lower foyer that you can drop it in uh, as you leave this morning. Let me invite you to stand and share a word of greeting with one another.
I'm going to tell you about the coming of the judgment. Fare thee well. Fare thee well. I'm going to tell you about the coming of the judgment. Fare thee well. Fare thee well. There's a better day a coming. Fare thee well. Fare thee well, there's a better day a coming. Fare thee well, fare thee well in that great a getting up morning. Fare thee well, fare thee well in that great a getting up morning. Fare thee well, fare thee well when you see the lightning flashing. Fare thee well, fare thee well when you hear the thunder crashing. Fare thee well, fare thee well when you see the stars have fallen. Fare thee well. Fare thee well when you hear the chariots calling. Fare thee well, fare thee well in that great a getting up morning. Fare thee well, fare thee well in that great a getting up morning. Fare thee well, fare thee well when you see the lightning flashing, when you hear the thunder crashing, when you see the stars are falling, when you hear the chariots calling. Good news, chariots coming. Good news. Good news, chariots are coming. So glad, so glad, chariots are coming, and I don't want to be left out. There's a long white robe in the heavens, I know. Long white robe in the heavens, I know. Long white robe in the heavens, I know. I said, good news, good news, chariots are coming. Good news, chariots are coming. So glad, so glad, chariots are coming, and I don't want to be left out. In that great, a getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. In that great, a getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. In that great, a getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. In that great, a getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. What a glorious day it's going to be, right? Man, what a glorious day. I think sometimes we think about that day and we're anxious and we're afraid. But God says that's a glorious day for his people. We get to be with Jesus. We get to experience the fullness of all that God has desired for his creation from the very beginning. And it's going to be glorious. The thing about that day, though, is that God's desire is that everybody on earth would experience that. His desire is that, that all, the, all the people of the world would know the joy of that day. And God has decided in his infinite wisdom that the way people are going to know about that day and his desires for his created beings is through the people who already know about that day. And that's us. 
And as I've pondered the, the prophecy of Zechariah, it's a long prophecy, 14 chapters. I thought about reading the whole thing, but I figured we'd have to tag team it because Jamie's voice would probably wear out by the time we got to the end of it. And it would take, that'd be all we do today, right? I mean, just read that 14 chapters. But you ought to read it if you haven't, because it's powerful. Lots of visions, lots of imagery, lots of things that God talks about. We're just barely going to scratch a little bit of the surface today. And we're going to ignore a whole lot of things that are there and just talk about a few things. But Zechariah and Haggai, who we talked about last week, are contemporaries. They both come back to Jerusalem with the exiles after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. And they come back, and Haggai's message, as we saw last week, is rebuild the temple. They came back at first. They started rebuilding the city. They put the foundation of the temple in place, and they left it there. For 15 years, it's just sat there. And Haggai comes along and says, look, y'all, you got to rebuild the temple. Because this is the visible sign of God's presence with you. And this is the place where you come to worship him and experience him. And the temple is vital. And so they start working on it. And Zechariah mentions the temple a few times. But he has a little different turn on things that he wants to say to the people. What he's saying to them, he's echoing what we see through all of the prophets. I'm convinced that the minor prophets are not 12 separate prophecies that have no connection to each other. I think they build on each other. And you start with Hosea talking about the love of God for his people and the lengths he's willing to go. And it just keeps building and building. And one of the messages that we see throughout this prophecy, the prophecies is that God is concerned about the whole world. And God calls his people to be agents of hope and grace in this world. And when God says through the prophet Zechariah and the other prophets, I want you to be my people, it is for the ultimate purpose of being his agents of grace and hope in a world of brokenness and pain and sin and struggle. And what was a message to Israel that really started with Abraham when he said, I'm going to bless the nations through you. And he says to Israel, I'm calling you out to be my special people so that you can be my witnesses. Jesus says the same thing to the church. And the thing about being witnesses for God is that we have a tendency to think that that, that our being God's people is more about escape than it is about engagement. And there is a place for, for coming away and, and hearing God and, and learning of God. But the purpose of that is to go and to be engaged. And we have a tendency to miss our calling because we're trying to escape instead of engage. And the temple that they are rebuilding it's not a place where the Israelites can escape. It's a place where, where people are drawn to its light. And it's a place from which the light of God goes forth into the nations so they will know who he is like Israel does. But I'm convinced that in order for us to be the kind of agents that God wants us to be, the kind of people in this world, the kind of people that lead others to the light of God in the midst of all of the darkness and pain and brokenness, we need to hear the call to be holy people. Now, I know we talk about holy people, about holiness. That sort of, that probably might ring negatively to you. 
Because you have all these images of holiness as strictness and narrowness and rules and regulations. And quite frankly, sometimes crazy things that people say about what it means to be holy. We think that to be holy is to separate ourselves. And there is certainly that element of it. But the real definition of holiness, God tells Israel in Exodus, Jesus tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, our calling is to be holy as God is holy. Our calling to be holy is to look like God, to be like him. And you and I can't make ourselves holy. What he's asking of us is that we desire to be holy. That we want to be the kind of people that look like God. The kind of people that think like God and speak like God and feel like God and and see like God. This is what God wants for his people. This is his calling on us. When you look at Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about the fact that that if you return to me, I will return to you. And that, that doesn't mean that God is standing back saying, look, you guys make the first move and then I'll do something. What he's really saying is, I've taken a hundred steps. I'm looking for you to take one and then see everything I have in store for you. But that's not the end of it. You move on to chapter 3 and you find that Joshua, who is the high priest, is dressed in filthy filthy rags in one of the visions. And and God comes to Zechariah and says, we got to clean this guy up. And they put on new clothes, clean, pure clothes. And it's a symbol of what God is going to do for his people. In chapter 8, it talks about God's holy mountain. And how it will be the place where God's people come. And they will experience his holiness there. His purity. And then you get to the very last two verses of this whole prophecy. And he talks about how the bells on the horse's reins will be inscribed Holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots, you know, when they when they build the, the temple, they they bring pots and bowls and forks and, and basins and all the things that they're going to need to do the sacrifices. And they're just common things until they go into the temple and they're consecrated and now they're holy things. And you don't treat them the same way that you treat the, the things in your cupboard at home. But God says in that day, every bowl in every home will be just as holy as those in the temple. And I think he is sending a message about God's desire for his people that all of his people would be holy like him. What I've discovered is that when we start thinking about holiness, our mind starts going to these rules and these regulations and We start thinking about checklists and we start thinking about all these things. But it seems to me that to seek holiness is to seek humility. To seek holiness is to seek humility. In John 16, Jesus is talking with his disciples in the upper room. This is the night he's arrested. And and he says to them, look, you're going to be arrested, and you're even going to be killed by people who think they are doing a holy service for God. When I read that a few weeks ago, it struck me that I've always thought of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of first century Palestine as basically evil people. 
But when I read that, it struck me that Jesus seems to describe them as arrogant people. As people who say, I'm right, and nothing you say is ever going to change my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts or truth. This is what I believe, and this is what I'm going to do. And you contrast that with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, blessed are those who are meek or humble. You contrast that picture of arrogance in John 16 with how Paul describes Jesus in Philippians 2. And he says, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what does that mind look like? Humility. God can do anything with a humble person. Anything. Because humble people are teachable. Humble people listen to others. Humble people are thinking more about what others need than what I want. Humble people believe things that are right and it doesn't change the fact that they are right, but they have an openness to other people who may disagree to listen, to discern, to think. And I think God is calling, I think to be holy as God desires is to have that spirit of humility in us. That says, I haven't figured out all the truth yet. I don't understand everything there is to understand. I can learn because God wants to teach me through anybody. It doesn't mean that the truth isn't the truth. It doesn't mean that we all stand for the truth. But we do it in a way that's humble rather than arrogant. You want to be a witness for God in this world. Humility goes a long ways, much farther than arrogance does. You think of the history of the church. What have we often tried to do? We've tried to force people to follow Jesus, as if that's even possible. But what I've discovered, too, is that in order for us to be this kind of witness, a humble witness, humble holy people, people that look like God. That happens in relationship. Holiness is proven. Holiness is, 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 is built in us. Holiness is, is worked out in us by our relationships. John Wesley said, there is no holiness but social holiness. It's, it's not, we tend to think holiness is just something inside of me. And it, certainly that's important. But holiness is always about relationships. It's always about how we treat other people, how we see other people, what we think about other people. And so when you get to chapter 7 of this prophecy, he says to them, look, here's what I want from you. I'm going to bless you, but here's what I want from you. You need to think about how you're treating people, the poor Orphan, widows. Stop lying to each other and saying that that's truth. And he talks about the same thing in chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. He says, look, you need to treat each other right because that's what my people do. It's about relationships. I'd like to think that being holy, you can be holy, just as holy by disengaging from people. You know, I get away from people because people, people make it hard to be holy. 
I think that's the point. Right? I think that's the point. And when you have a holy heart, when you have a humble kind of heart, you care about people. We can love people, sort of, if we aren't humble. But if you're humble, you'll really love people. We can, we can love and care about people in a condescending way. Or we can love and care about people in a humble way. That looks like Jesus. Our church, the Wesleyan Church, is rooted in the 19th century holiness movement. Started in 1843. And the issue was multifaceted, but it was really about holiness. That the people who, Orrin Scott and Luther Lee, among others, said that the church they were a part of was really not following holiness anymore. They weren't teaching it. They weren't, they, weren't, uh, they weren't admonishing people about it. They didn't care about it. And so they said, we care about holiness. But here's the interesting thing. How, did they, how would, did they view that holiness? What did that holy living look like? It was related to two central issues. Abolition and the suffragette movement. And these people who said, look, if, if we're really holy, we care about ending slavery. And we're going to do everything in our power to, to end it. And if we are really holy, we care about the rights of women, that, that all people should be treated with respect and have the same rights. And why did they believe those things about other people? Because of holiness. Unfortunately, in the next hundred years, we lost some of that fervor. And by the time you get to the 1960s, our mindset was pretty much holiness is rules and regulations and it's just me and Jesus. And so when you read about the civil rights movement of the 1960s, and you read it particularly about the march and Selma, you will find people from most every denomination and religion marching. But you wouldn't find many Westlands. We lost it. We missed it. I think we've begun to see that over the last 30 or 40 years. I think we've begun to realize that we have, we've missed it. And we're, we need to come back to that. And I'm so grateful for that. We're beginning to understand that holiness is always about people. It's always about relationships. And if you're going to live humbly, in this kind of holy life, the only way we're going to do that is if we come to believe, we come to understand who we are to God. In chapter 2, verse 8, God says, The people who harm you are harming my precious possession. The King James translated that, are touching the apple of my eye. God's precious possession. Unfortunately, we often think of being his precious possession as meaning we're better than other people. That's not the point. We are his precious possession so that 
we can share his grace and love and mercy with other people who want that. And until we recognize that who we are in God, it will be very, very difficult for us to live humble, holy lives as agents of his kingdom in this world. Think about people you know who maybe you'd call them bullies. Maybe you'd call them people who, you know, who are always fighting for their rights, who, who you know, are, are, will never really have a discussion with you because they are never wrong. Those people are not, don't do that because they're so secure. It's because they're insecure. When we're secure, we don't have to fight for our rights. We don't have to win every battle because we have a bigger picture of life than just that. We have found security in the only place we can really know security, and that's in God. And he says, you're my treasured possession. When Jesus, again, meeting with his disciples in the upper room, in John 13, it says that that knowing he had he had been given all authority by the Father, that he had come from the Father and was returning to the Father, knowing his security, who he was in his Father, what did he do? He took up a towel and a basin and got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet. It was his security in his Father that gave him the ability to do that. We need to know we're God's treasured possessions. Both as individuals and as the church. He loves us with an everlasting love. Throughout Zechariah's prophecy, there are numerous references to shepherds. Sometimes the reference is positive, sometimes it's negative. But there is a, a passage about, about God being the shepherd in chapter 9, verse 16. And he says, on that day, the Lord their God will rescue his people just as a shepherd rescues his sheep. That got me thinking about what's the most profound act in Scripture of God declaring his people as his precious possession? I've always thought it was the Exodus. You know, I've I've always thought it was the Exodus. I'm starting to come to see that maybe, maybe it's the return from exile. Because when God rescues his people out of Egypt, they aren't there because of their sin. In fact, going to Egypt was God's rescue of them from famine and death. And, and through Joseph, Jacob and all of his family makes their way to Egypt and they settle there and they flourish until they flourish so much that the Egyptians get insecure and, and they enslave them. And God goes and rescues them and said, look, you're my people. And I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going, to, I'm going to make you my people to be my witnesses. And he calls them out. But when the Israelites go into exile, it's because they've rejected God. It's because they have declared, we don't really want to have anything to do with God. We'd rather worship Baal and Asherah and Molech. And so God steps back and says, fine, you want to worship those gods? Let's see how they do for protecting you. And they end up in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And there's a part of me that if I were in charge of this thing, which we're all grateful that isn't the case, but if I were in charge of this thing, 
I might be tempted to leave them there because they've rejected me so many times. And yet, here is God saying, you're my people. I love you. It reminds me of of the parable Jesus tells in Luke 15 about the lost sheep. You know, that lost sheep is not a sheep that that he just came upon one day. That's a sheep that was a part of the flock and ran away. And the shepherd goes and gets him and brings him home. I was in the prayer room last night and I again saw this picture, this image of of the shepherd nuzzling this sheep. And I think this is a beautiful picture of our preciousness to God. He delights in us. I love the smile on his face that you've come home. I've missed you. I've wanted you. I love you. I'll rescue you anytime I need to. If we could just get a glimpse, a deeper understanding of who we are to God, it would transform our lives. And we'd be the kind of holy agents for God in this world that would draw more and more people to him, his kingdom purposes. But ultimately, the way God feels about us and the catalyst for all of this, it it comes back to Jesus. None of the minor prophets are even close to having the number of references to to the Messiah that Zechariah does. The number of times Zechariah is quoted in the New Testament far exceeds any of the other minor prophets. You read the Gospels and you look at those references, you will find... Isaiah, Ezekiel, and then Zechariah. And you will see many, many prophecies, particularly in the Passion narrative. Because he knows how vital it is for this one to come. How vital it is for God to communicate in a very close, real way his feelings for us. His desires for us. Who we are to him. And it's rooted in Jesus. In in chapter 6... Verses 12 and 13, he talks about the branch that is coming. And God will use this branch to save his people and to restore his people and to bring them home. And you get to come to chapter 14. And he has this interesting reference about the Feast of Tabernacles. It surprised me that he says all the nations are going to come and they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. I would have thought they would have said they're all going to come and celebrate the Passover. Isn't that the, that seems like the biggest thing, Right? But it's not. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. You, there are still uh, many places where there's a, a significant Jewish population where they celebrate Sukkot. This, uh, this day where they, people build little lean-tos or they live in tents for a week, which is what the Israelites did in this festival. They got, went out of their homes, they went out, and they lived in huts and lean-tos and tents. And it was, uh, it was to remind them, among other things... Of the 40 years that they lived in those kinds of, of nomadic homes in the desert. And the reason they celebrate this as a festival is because they remember that in those inclement conditions, God was with them and cared for them. 
I think one of the most fascinating things at the end of the at the end of the wandering story is that it says Israelites spent forty years in the wilderness and their clothes didn't wear out. Now the fashions may have changed, but their clothes didn't wear out. And they had all the food they wanted to eat. They had all the water they wanted to drink. He protected them. He cared for them. This is our God. And he says, the day on that day, all of the people, all the nations are going to come and celebrate that I am close to my people. And then I can't help but think of John's gospel. Where he says in one translation, and the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. In Jesus, God comes to us to say, you are my special possession. If you were here this summer and heard Cindy preach, she talked about how our, our little granddaughter is now two and a half. She, when we walk into their house or if she's at our house and one of us comes in the door, she says to us almost, almost every time, shoes off. I mean, just this week I came in and said, shoes off, Grandpa, shoes off. In fact, she reached down and started untying my shoes to try to help me get them off. Shoes off, Grandma, shoes off, Grandpa. And it took us a while to figure out what she was saying and what, she, what the implication of that was. We finally figured it out that when you take your shoes off, it means you're going to stay. If you leave your shoes on, you're probably only there a couple of minutes and then you're going to go again. And she wants us to stay. And that got me thinking about Moses in the burning bush. You know, he's out there in the desert tending his sheep and he looks over and says, huh, there's a bush burning, but it doesn't burn up. Maybe I should go check this out. And he walks over and he hears God saying to him, Moses, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. Shoes off, Moses. And the next thing that came to me is a recognition that God never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done. And God coming to this earth, appearing in the bush, living among his people, ultimately the word made flesh. God took his shoes off long before he asked us to take off ours. And there is a sense in which God is still walking barefoot to be with us. Because he loves us and he wants us. And when we begin to understand that, when that gets inside of us, then being humble, holy, Agents of God in this world seems almost natural. You know, a lot of times when we think about prophecy, uh, we think about fear. And the church has been pretty good at using prophecy to instill fear into people through the centuries. When I was young, that was kind of the modus operandi, right, in the 60s and 70s. Let's see if we can scare everybody out of hell into heaven. And so we, you know, we, these movies and all the, the talk and the books and things to say, we're going to instill fear in people. 
But I don't really think that's the point of prophecy. I think the point of prophecy is to awaken us. And in that awakening, to give us a vision of who God is. And a vision of who we are in God's eyes. And a vision of who we can be in him. That's what God wants for us. God calls us his special people. He redeems us. He rescues us so that we can be his humble, holy agents through Christ in this world of brokenness and need, hurting and pain. Father, we pray that you will help us to see the vision of who you are and who we are in your eyes and what we can be in you through the grace of Christ. Open our minds, open our hearts. We might be the people you created us to be. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.